A Supreme Court bombshell and going after coveted voters. Welcome to Grand Divisions, the Tennesseans policy and politics podcast. It's the week of September 17th. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. And I'm Natalie Allison, political reporter. A ton of analysis and stories to get to, but first let's come to the big news this week. The confirmation hearings for uh, Supreme Court candidate Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, you may be asking, you know, what does it have to do with the Senate race and with senators who might not actually vote on this nomination? It's important to note that whichever senator uh, is is elected, whether that's Marsha Blackburn or Phil Bredesen, there's a really good chance that they are going to vote on a potential future uh, nominee for the court. The court uh, isn't getting any younger. There could definitely be at least one, if not two other replacements coming from the Trump presidency or the president after that during the next six year term. So it's really important to see how these uh, candidates think through the process. But first, Natalie, you heard from both of our sitting senators here in Tennessee. What did they say about these allegations that are coming from a named woman saying that while Brett Kavanaugh and, and this woman were in high school, that Mr. Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh attacked this woman? Essentially, I think she called it an attempted rape. So what did what did the Senate, uh, the current senators say about these allegations? Well, Corker's people actually still haven't gotten back to us. We just got a statement in from Lamar Alexander's people in which they said that the Senate Judiciary Committee committee should carefully consider the accuser's allegations here, what the woman said Judge Kavanaugh did when they were in high school. Um, he also said that it's troubling that Senate Democrats appear to have known about it for weeks and were essentially sitting on it until after the hearing for Kavanaugh occurred, which is similar to what some other Republicans, including uh Chuck Grassley, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, have said. So Lamar Alexander says they should consider what she's saying. Corker said something similar. He spoke to Politico, um, and he said that they should hear this woman out before they move forward, that potentially a vote in the committee should be delayed. And neither Corker nor Alexander are on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right, and that that comes at the same time where President Trump says maybe a short delay is important or necessary, which I can't imagine— Senate Republicans were excited to hear. Joel, what did we hear from Marsha Blackburn and Phil Bredesen about this? Phil Bredesen in an early morning, Friday or Monday morning tweet, basically said that um, uh, the accuser, uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, should be heard uh, if U.S. senators are not going to give a careful and thorough consideration of Supreme Court nominees. Then I don't know what they think their job is. Essentially, his people got back to me and said, of course, he is kind of inferring that there should be a delay, that, that, that this careful consideration couldn't happen before Thursday's planned vote. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, um, she actually spoke to Hugh Hewitt earlier in the, uh, the day, uh, and Hewitt tweeted out, I think that this is a delay tactic and Chuck Grashley should proceed with the vote. I don't think that the vote should be delayed. We actually had Marsh Blackburn come into the office for an, an editorial board meeting uh, pre-scheduled Monday morning, uh, and I, I caught up with her afterwards, and she said, quote, I think uh, for her, she should be heard, um, referring to the accuser, uh, Ms. Ford. Uh, she should come in before the vote on Thursday. I do think that whatever she has to say, she should say it under oath. So essentially, Blackburn saying, again, I think we can stick to the, the timing of the vote, um, but she should be heard. So both candidates are getting behind that. And again, just to be clear, uh, Brett Kavanaugh has denied the allegations, and he said that he's willing to testify 
uh, Dr. Dr. Ford has also said that she's willing to testify. She came out on the record recently. Uh, and so it seems like if both people want to have a hearing that there's a there could be cause to have a hearing. Uh, there's also been talk about, you know, maybe this comes to a hearing on Thursday. Maybe there's a vote. Maybe there's a full vote in the Senate. Who knows how that'll come down? It's a, you know, very tightly contested body. And that voters would have the decision to say my my elected representative decided to confirm this justice with these allegations or not, and then act accordingly. Now, I think that Democrats would say, well, we didn't even get the chance to do that with Merrick Garland right. and that the, the Senate majority is kind of, you know, being hypocritical with these statements. But difference, we'll, of course, being that this is a non uh, presidential election year and, and this is a midterm year. And that's what Republicans kind of point out. Yeah, a lot changes on this very rapidly. So we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see if the vote happens on, on Thursday. Uh, speaking of a lot of changes in, in, in politics, we've had kind of this rapid onslaught of polls coming out focused on both the U.S. Senate race and the gubernatorial race here in Tennessee. We had a uh, NBC Marist poll come out previously. Uh, had two new polls come out uh, within recent days. Um, Joel, can you talk to us about the poll that came out from Fox News recently? Yeah, so Fox has a poll that was conducted in uh, early September that showed Blackburn was up three. Uh, she was up 47%, Bredesen 44%, Undecided's at 8%. Um, you know, it, it, it again shows exactly what we've seen in in recent weeks that this is a very tight race. Um, the interesting point on this poll uh, really kind of showed the support for Bredesen even with independents and moderates. Uh, that's a, a point that he's going to hope uh, continues. Bred uh, Blackburn's people I've talked to about this, and they weren't surprised by the poll. So, I mean, obviously, uh, depending on the source, some people look at this and say, "Oh, well, it's a Fox News poll." So. You can't really believe it. Of course, it's going to be slanted. Well, even if that is true, the, the underlying thing is that this is still a very close race. The margin of error on that poll was 3.5%. Not so. a great poll for Carl Dean, right? Uh, not that great. It, it showed uh, Bill Lee up uh, uh, 20 points on, on Carl Dean. 20 it was, points. It was quite the spread. So Yeah, that's not good. That's uh, typically not good. There was also another poll that came out just this week from CNN. Natalie, what did the, that poll find? Well, that poll has a little bit better news for Carl Dean. He's only down nine points wow. among likely voters there. Okay. That's, that's CNN's poll new today, the day of this recording, Monday, September 17th. 2018. So CNN's poll says that Bredesen has a five point edge over Blackburn. Uh, the margin of error on that one is 4.3%. And um, Blackburn is, is at 45%. Bredesen is at 50%. And then in the gubernatorial race, they have Carl Dean down by 9%. Yeah. And as you noted, better poll for, for the Dean campaign. There was a tweet that came out from Carl Dean said, we're moving in the right direction. Now, you're down 20 points in the poll, uh, in, in, a, in any poll, clearly less than that is in the right direction. I'm not sure, though, that candidates should be excited about a poll that puts them down nine percentage points a month out from early voting. To, to kind of dig, dig into that a little bit more, I spoke with Professor Kent Seiler. He's a professor of, of political science at Middle Tennessee State University. And we talked about this idea of what do you do if you're a candidate that's staring down the barrel of bad poll numbers and time is running out in the race. Professor Seiler, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. 
Glad to be here. Glad so, to be able to, to join you. So politicos in Tennessee know that there have been a few polls that have come out recently, including a, a CNN poll that just came out on Monday, that show that Carl Dean just continues to trail Bill Lee. Some of those polls put Dean down by 13 points or, or you know, a really si- seemingly a significant deficit. What do campaigns do when they see polls come out like that in, you know, late August, early September, uh, what can they do to try and right the ship in time for a November general election? Well, the first thing you've got to do is is keep your campaign moving forward. It's it's very easy for um, campaign workers and even the candidate to get disheartened and you know not work as hard or work their plan. So the first thing a good campaign manager and a good candidate must do is to continue to to work their plan. The other is uh, since, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, I think if we look at uh, Mayor Dean, he's down somewhere in the last three polls between nine and 20 points. And it's been a pretty consistent situation. So you've got to start looking for ways to try to close the gap, to look for, you know, potentially issues where you have an advantage, where you can, uh, you know, maybe pull some votes over that way. And then you've got to uh, hope for a break. You've got to, um, if we use a football analogy, you've got to hope for a turnover. And what the Lee campaign's trying to do right now is, you know, not fumble. Yeah, and so when you when you say hope for a break or a turnover, you mean something like like a big stumble by by Lee, or just some sort of either issue to come out, or like a faux pas from him at a debate, or something like that, right? That, that's right. You, you've got to hope. Either the, the candidate makes a mistake, you're either your issue uh, that you're highlighting. Let's take Medicaid expansion right now. You know, Carl Dean has gone to that issue for a reason. I'm sure he's drawing that contrast with Bill Lee because he has polling that says he's on the winning side of that issue. Now, the advantage probably isn't great enough to make up, you know, a, a huge number of points. But he's going to keep pushing that issue to see if it can move it. Uh, the other thing, especially considering this is a midterm election, the other break that I'm sure the Dean campaign is hoping for is maybe some national uh, issue. Maybe you know Donald Trump is going to have a lot to do with this race. Donald Trump's numbers, approval-wise, have stayed pretty steady in Tennessee. But, you know, if something happens with Donald Trump and his popularity drops, that could affect the race. So they're just right now trying to work their plan, stay in the ball game, and be able to take advantage of any breaks. So, so at what point, if you're the Dean campaign, at what point in the, in the calendar do you say, okay, these polls haven't turned around or they haven't turned around enough. We need to go on a new strategy. Like, is there like a drop dead date or something like that? Well, I think you've got to just continually try to find things that work. I mean, there's a lot of polling going on, so they'll try this Medicaid message for a while, see how it works. Uh, Then they may have a few other messages they've tested, but you've almost got to try things until they work. And really, it's the the urgency is now. You know, Tennessee starts early vote in a month or so. So campaigns have been moved up a lot more than they were when when everyone voted on Election Day. So, you know, it gets late. Excuse me. It gets late very fast in these races. So, you know, there's there's 
time is always of the essence. It's if we go back to an athletic contest, I mean, it's, you know, the clock is running on the game. And uh, if you're just sitting there uh, dribbling or running back and forth uh, on the football field, you know, from sideline to sideline, you're not going to get anywhere. So you've got to, you know, move pretty quickly. So do you think that means that the, the campaign, the Dean campaign needs to like go on like a negative ad blitz or like start like hot, like like just something something potentially drastic to try and like bring down Lee's popularity or, or just something that, that that you're saying is is just out of the out of the park like a high risk high reward procedure. Yes, you know you typically in a campaign the strategy would be this: is if you've got a candidate with a very high positive and you are behind, you would go on the attack. Now, there's some problems in the the Lee-Dean race of attacking Bill Lee. I mean, Bill Lee took negative attacks in the primary and turned them on his opponents extremely right. well. So if you're Carl Dean's team, you're sitting there looking at that and saying, you know, this has been tried once. And he certainly turned it around and took it to his advantage. So I'm not going to make that same mistake. The other problem with attacking Bill Lee is, you know, he doesn't have a political record. So he comes out of business, uh, you know, there's realistically, there might not be that much to attack. So you start looking at issue contrast and that go back to the Medicaid expansion ad. Uh, You know, I think that's really a pretty good comparative ad that the Dean campaign run as far as fairness goes. Uh, It's an ad on the issue. The Dean campaign's gambling that they're on the correct side of it, and it's not seen as as, as overly negative. So they've got to look for more issues like that. Um, And, you know, a lot of times there aren't that many of those out there. Right. And just just to explain for everybody, that's that's that idea of, of Medicaid expansion, like eligibility expansion. And that's this is something that a Republican governor here in Tennessee, Bill Haslam, has been pushing for. And there have been multiple polls that that have gone out that have shown the majority of Tennesseans are open to the idea of expanding eligibility and having federal funds pay for that. Um, do you I would imagine that Dean has to pounce on that during any debates that, that he has with Billy and has to really try and drive that home if he thinks that health care can drive some of those moderate or potentially Republican leading voters over into his camp. Yes, he's, he's got to look for issues like that. And, you know, I'll tell you, the, the probably the most popular voter out there right now, uh, if you look at these three polls, and we look at the Senate race with Phil Bredesen and Marsha Blackburn and the governor's race with, with Bill Lee and, and Carl Dean, you, you'll see that Bredesen is leading in two out of the three, and Dean is behind in all three. So we have something we've not had in a lot of elections in Tennessee recently. We have some ticket splitting going on. There are some Lee Bredesen voters out there. So this, th- these voters figure into the strategy of all four candidates. Bredesen is trying to work hard to hold on to those people that are voting for a Republican for governor and him for the Senate. Marsha Blackburn is targeting those Lee Bredesen voters, hoping that they're the weakest Bredesen voters and able to bring them over. And then Carl Dean is looking and saying, how can I get these Bredesen voters to move over and vote for me. So they're all looking at that group of ticket splitters 
and trying to figure out either how to hold them or how to move them. Yeah, clearly the camps think or at least hope that those voters are the ones who are persuadable if they're willing to, to split, you know, which is a pretty obvious split in ideology yeah, exactly between a Billy right, governor yeah. and, a, and a Phil Bredesen senatorial candidate. Yeah, they, that's exactly right. They are, they are assuming that these are the voters that are persuadable and they're treating them just like they would an undecided voter. Ken Seiler, political science professor with Middle Tennessee State University. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I feel like that uh, the Republicans have to stay in the majority in the Senate for anything to get done. So I will be voting for for Marsha for that reason. Um, I uh, I liked what Bredesen did as governor, and um, if he wasn't a Democrat, I'd be voting for him. That was audio from my colleague Natalie Allison interviewing Judy Partain, a Brentwood resident who indicated she's voting for Marsha Blackburn in this year's U.S. Senate race. Partain lives in a key area that could play a major role in deciding this year's election. This week, we talked to two experts about suburban voters. This morning, I've got Whit Ayers, president of North Star Opinion Research, with me, here to talk a little bit about polling and what we're seeing in uh, Tennessee and specifically in the suburbs. Thanks for coming on, Whit. Happy to do it. One of the things I've been reading about lately is how Democrats are hoping to see uh, the suburb areas of specifically, you know, not northern cities only, but southern cities, uh, Atlanta, uh, some in Tennessee, um, as a, a way to make gains in this upcoming midterm election. Um, what, what have you been seeing on that front? We know that President Trump is relatively weaker in well-educated suburban areas than have been other Republican candidates for president. Uh, Karen Handel is a client of ours in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Those are some of the best-educated congressional districts just north of Atlanta, anywhere in the country. Uh, Upwards of three-quarters of the voters have college degrees or more. Uh, Donald Trump... Uh, barely won that congressional district by one point. Uh, Tom Price, in November 2016, won that district by 23 points. Mm. Karen Handel ran a very good campaign uh, with a lot of money spent, some $40 million in the special election of June of 16, and she won it by four. So that shows you the challenge that Republican candidates in suburban areas are facing in the midterm election in 2018. Well, I know you're not in the business to necessarily comment on other people's polls, but just yesterday, NBC and Marist had a poll related to Tennessee. And I thought one of the more interesting uh, findings was specifically about Donald Trump's support uh, in the suburbs versus uh, rural areas. So uh, on, on the question of approve versus disapprove of the, the job that Trump is doing, uh, his support in the suburbs was 50% to 39%, whereas in rural Rural areas, it's 63 to 25. If you go to favorable and unfavorable impression of Trump, it changes though. In the suburbs, it's 44 favorable, 49 unfavorable, and then in rural, it's 59-32. Is that kind of in line with with what you're finding, or or is this poll, you know, kind of an outlier? 
No, it's not an outlier at all. Um, in fact, that is exactly what we see in many other areas where the president's support is really strong in overwhelmingly white, um, smaller, more downscale counties and relatively weaker in larger, fast-growing, more diverse, upscale counties. That's a pattern that you see throughout the entire country. Now, it needs to be said that the southern suburban areas are more conservative uh, than those in Philadelphia, for example, or in northern Virginia outside Washington, D.C., But the same basic pattern occurs. Uh, What Republicans have done in 2016 is trade uh, large, fast-growing, upscale counties for smaller, slow-growing, downscale counties. Uh, It worked for Donald Trump in 2016 by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, but it's not a formula for long-term success. Should Republicans be nervous about, you know, again, this is this is going to be a key base to uh, get support from in, in the midterm elections. Should they be nervous? Of course. Hillary Clinton won the two largest, most Republican counties in Georgia, the counties on which we used to base statewide Republican victories, Cobb County and Gwinnett County. I was stunned that Hillary Clinton won the two largest, most Republican counties in the state. And if that's a sign of things to come, that's a sign of concern for Republicans in the midterms. That's certainly something that you didn't hear about, though, after the 2016 election, right? It it was uh, this a resounding victory. You know, uh, the president uh, won in areas like Michigan that one didn't anticipate going into election night. Um, But I I certainly think that what you're pointing out is that there were early signs of uh, concern dating back to that election that are now potentially uh, kind of coming to fruition now. Of course, you're exactly right. The the blue-collar counties that flipped from Obama to Trump got a lot of attention. What got less attention were the upscale, normally Republican suburban counties that flipped from Romney to Clinton. Can you talk, uh, and, and I don't know how much you have paid attention to Tennessee's Senate race, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the dynamics at play here in, in Tennessee with uh, Phil Bredesen on the ballot, uh, Marsha Blackburn, uh, you know, uh, going up against him, obviously. Uh, very interesting that we're intrigued on, but what are your thoughts on the race? We've done a lot of work in Tennessee. The governor and both senators are clients of ours. Uh, And we've done work in Tennessee uh, going back over two decades. Uh, It's a fascinating race uh, where Bob Corker would have been a shoe-in for a general election, re-election, I think. I don't think Phil Bredesen would have run against Bob Corker. Uh, But because Marsha Blackburn is in the race, uh, Phil Bredesen got into it. He is a very popular former centrist Democratic candidate. I have a lot of Republican friends in Tennessee who really like Phil Bredesen. Uh, They really don't like Marsha Blackburn, and they really don't want Chuck Schumer to be majority leader in the U.S. Senate. So conflicting views there. (laughs) 
how they wrestle with that tension is going to determine the winner of that Senate race. Are they are do you think there are Republicans in Tennessee that are kind of holding their nose and hoping, okay, if I cast a vote for Bredesen, I just hope that Democrats aren't successful throughout the country and are able to get the majority. They still hope that that the, yes. the Republicans will have the majority. Yes, it is a straight answer. Um, and it's the task of the Marsha Blackburn campaign to persuade them that that is a pipe dream and that if they vote for Bredesen, uh, that may be the critical seat that gives the majority to the Democrats. I, I was speaking uh, to one of uh, the folks involved in the Blackburn campaign yesterday because this NBC poll I thought was very interesting on a couple of fronts, but one of them was that um, Marsha Blackburn, in terms of uh, support from women, uh, is down. So it, it, this NBC poll found that uh, women, college-educated edu- women, uh, 55% supported Bredesen, 44 Blackburn. When I asked the Blackburn campaign about this, uh, they essentially said, that's a problem with all Republicans. Uh, what say you? Is that is that accurate? Um, they're basically right on that score, that college-educated women uh, are the weakest of the demographic categories uh, among whites for Donald Trump and consequently for Republicans in this election unless the Republican candidate uh, appeals to them. If the Republican candidate appeals to them, like Karen Handel does mm-hmm. in Georgia 6, uh, they will vote for but they're they're much less likely to be reflexively Republican in 2018 than they have been before 2016. What will you be keeping an eye on? What should we be keeping an eye on in the closing months of this election and even on election night uh, in terms of, you know, either a voter base or an area, specifically in Tennessee, if you can give us uh, some ideas? What's fascinating to me about the upcoming midterms is that it really is a tale of two different elections. The House elections are really a proxy for the popular vote in 2016 that Hillary Clinton won rather comfortably. The Senate elections, on the other hand, are much more like the Electoral College, where smaller, more conservative states have a disproportionate influence. And because of the luck of a draw of this particular Senate map, the Senate races that are up are among the most conservative states in the country. So you could very well have the House and the Senate going different partisan directions, uh, depending upon the outcome of a of a number of Senate races that are likely to be very close. Hmm. Whit Ayers, president of North Star Opinion Research. I appreciate you coming on the show, and we look forward to uh, continuing to, to work with you in the future. Happy to do it. For a different perspective on how suburban voters may impact this year's election, we turn to Holly McCall, chairman of the Williamson County Democratic Party. Hey, Joel, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. This week, we're kind of looking at at how the suburbs uh, of Nashville and other uh, cities throughout uh, Tennessee are mm-hmm. going to play a role in the midterm election. And just kind of wanted to get, you know, your sense of, of where things are right now. I mean, you... Uh, you and I were talking recently, and you've been in Williamson County for, for how many uh, years now, and, and what's it looking like these days? 
Well, you know, I grew up in Williamson County, first of all. I'm 54, I don't mind saying, and I grew up here. And when I was growing up here, the county was very moderate. It was almost a 50-50 split where we would have one state representative who was a Democrat, and the next time it would be a Republican. And it's only in the last 20 years that it's gotten very hardcore Republican. Having said that, there does seem to be a shift towards the center in the last couple of years. Um, Williamson was the only county in the state of Tennessee that did not vote for Donald Trump at the primary. It went for Marco Rubio. Um, Donald, I mean, I'm sorry, Phil Bredesen is very popular here. And I would just say anecdotally, and you feel free to interrupt me, but anecdotally, I was running last Saturday. <laughs> I took a seven mile run around downtown Franklin in the outskirts. And, you know, political people always say yard signs don't vote, which is true. But I do think it is some measure of someone's popularity when you note how many yard signs are out. And I lost count of the Phil Bredesen signs I saw, and I saw one Marsha Blackburn sign on the run. So, I mean, what's what's the skepticism behind uh, the president, at least in Williamson County, you think? I, I mean, the fact that, again, you pointed out that he, he didn't win Williamson in at least the uh, primary election. Why do you think that was the case? Well, you know, Donald Trump seems to have done well in, and there's no, um, there's no criticism here, but he seems to do pretty well in rural areas, um, in areas where there are less economic, fewer economic opportunities, and he's really spoken to a group of people who feel disenfranchised, and that is not the case in Williamson County, or frankly, in some of the other donut counties around Tennessee, um, or other parts of the country, like Northern Virginia. Um, You know, we're doing very well economically. People here, lots of college graduates. And so I think they just did not identify with Donald Trump in the way that folks in uh, rural parts of the state did. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I think uh, recently there was this new poll from NBC and Marist that just kind of underlined some of that that said, uh, you know, women, specifically college educated women, uh, that Bredesen is, is, uh, has a significant lead over uh, Blackburn on that. So you seem to think that that's, that is happening in at least in in Williamson County? Yeah, I do. And I actually, since you bring up women, I hear from a ton of women. My phone rings every day because the County Democratic Party um, phone number line is connected to mine. And I get a ton of phone calls predominantly from women who want to volunteer for Governor Bredesen, who want yard signs for Governor Bredesen, who want to know how they can give money to him. And, you know, what are the, what are the, advantages that he brings to this is he's a known quantity in Tennessee and has been for the last 30 years. And so when the Republicans tried to tar him with some of the, um, some of the, um, tags that they like to put on Democrats like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, Democrat, people know Phil Bredesen, and they just don't believe that. And I kind of think they're going to have a hard time tagging Carl Dean with that as well. He's certainly not as high in the polls. You know, right now he's behind Bill Lee, but I don't think that the identity politics that the Republicans are used to playing are going to work on him either. Are the dynamics shifting? The, the politics of Williamson County, are those changing in your estimation, um, you know, at, me, at least maybe going forward? forward? They, they are. And it's a gradual, it's a very gradual thing. Um, I have one of my most overused expressions is Rome was not built in a day. You know, there are conservatives who like to say here that Democrats are starting to gain a toehold because so many people have moved here in recent years. And that's certainly a part of it, but that is not all of it. For 20 years, the state and county Republican Party, um, at least 20 years, were very complacent. 
you know, the state legislature was controlled by Democrats from after Reconstruction until 10 years ago. And there was just no effort to continue to recruit strong Democratic candidates or even run Democratic candidates at all. And in the last two years, when we put a focus on recruiting um, strong Democrats who talk about local issues and do not talk the DNC party line, they talk about traffic, they talk about the economy and education. And I think it shows that there is a hunger for for people who will talk about practical issues and not ideological ones. Well, uh, thank you again for coming on the show, Holly. We appreciate your your thoughts and comments, uh, and we will continue to watch Williamson County as well as other uh, suburbs and see how that shakes up the uh, 2018 and impacts the 2018 midterms. Well, Joel, I appreciate being included, and you know I will keep you posted. An obvious way that these campaigns want to try to woo those suburban voters is with ads, right? Obviously, if you've been watching TV or going online or essentially living your life in Tennessee in the recent weeks, you've seen an onslaught of ads. Uh, campaigns uh, and outside groups rolled out a few new ones recently. Joel, give us a breakdown of these ads from the outside organizations that were recently released. Yeah, one is from uh, Senate Leadership Fund, which is essentially tied to Mitch McConnell, uh, basically criticizing Phil Bredesen for sort of living the uh, rich life. Essentially, they, they point to um, how he, as mayor, raised property taxes three times during his six years in office. They also point to uh, the fact that when he was governor, uh, he raised uh, taxes and fees by some uh, nearly $1 billion. They cite a couple of uh, news stories, uh, one of which is a 2010 Chattanooga Times Free Press. Uh, the ad, you know, basically trying to attack Bredesen and say that if he gets to D.C., he's going to raise your taxes. Uh, they responded with essentially uh, this ad uh, from the campaign with a brown bag saying, oh, he's talking about serious issues. Phil Bredesen loved loves brown bags and so sure. of course he had to put it in an ad and they're talking about like you're saying we uh, kind of trying to dispute some of the underlying ideas from that ad. sure and then the other uh critic critical ad that came out recently was this one from majority forward uh which really criticized blackburn and and her uh work on on the opioid crisis specifically this 60 minutes washington post uh joint investigation last year that they basically found uh, the, this legislation that Blackburn co-sponsored, along with several other people, we've talked about this in the podcast before, uh, really kind of harmed and, uh, as some folks say, neutered the DEA uh, from stopping sus- suspicious shipments of drugs. So. And the Blackburn camp also rolled out uh, an ad of their own where they showed people who are purporting to be Tennessee voters who said that they voted for Phil Bredesen for governor, but now they just can't support him anymore for, for Senate. Yeah, difference between uh, Blackburn's ad uh, with supporters and Bredesen's ad with his supporters, the brown bag ad. Uh, Bredesen's folks gave a pseudo challenge, a transparency challenge to uh, Blackburn because essentially they said, here's the names of the people that are in our ad. Blackburn's people wouldn't say who is in their ad and just say they're real Tennesseans, they're real voters. So there's kind of this back and forth where people are like, ah, is it, are they real or not? Are they there's just a, you see it at least once or twice every cycle. Some candidate gets called out for yeah. having actors who are from either a different state or country in their ad purporting to be local voters. So it, obviously that's the implication here from Bredesen's people. Blackburn's people are pushing back on that. Nobody's talking about the actual issues in that ad. Not At least not in the ad, but more recently they did try and tackle an issue. So uh, I went to uh, Chattanooga and uh, heard a, a plan from Phil Bredesen to 
uh, I guess, address, address the nation's uh, federal deficit. Uh, and then that same exact day, Marsha Blackburn comes out with her plan, uh, which essentially consists of, you know, uh, more of the same tax points, tax cuts 2.0, um, she says, will spur the economy into helping us address the nation's, uh, uh, you know, deficit. Uh, whereas Phil Bredesen has some interesting math that he says, if we freeze um, uh, additional spending, I think it is, I might be getting this wrong, Dave, uh, and, and allow it to catch up to the uh, um, uh, how much revenue we generate at some point, that will catch up and allow us to pay off the debt. Um, so this is actually, a, you know, a, a, an interesting piece and a difference between the two that is pretty clear. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go check out the story. Again, uh, it's on our website, of course, and all of our, our platforms. And it'd be interesting to see, obviously, both Blackburn and Bredesen would be operating within a larger body, and it's unclear which party would control that, right? But let's say that Bredesen wins and the Democrats take control of, of the Senate. It would be very surprising if a bill, if those ideas could make it through a Democrat-controlled Senate and obviously would face a lot of opposition from a Republican-controlled White House. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be tough for the president, uh, who, again, is, is, is supportive of these tax cuts, to say, oh, yeah, we want to make additional cuts and rein in our spending if we've already said that this new plan is going to cost $10 trillion over the next yeah. uh, couple of years. Or at, I think it's less than that, actually. At, at the same time, you know, and, and Natalie can speak to this, too, we've heard from Phil Bredesen talking about entitlement reforms for a long time. I mean, he's Natalie has a story come out about uh, reforming 10Care, and that was a, that's a big plank of, of uh, both what he's running on and also some criticism that he's faced in the past. Um, it's also not uncommon to hear Republicans talk about entitlement reform, right? I mean, like that's this idea of reforming entitlement programs to to tighten your belts is kind of like a like a plank of the Republican Party potentially since its founding. So much so that the, there's a new ad from Bredesen where he is seizing, and this is a digital-only ad, but uh, seizing on Marsha Blackburn's previous praise of Phil Bredesen on the 10Care program, reforming the 10Care program. So it's very interesting to see how all this is going to play out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, saw something of a surprise, kind of, potentially, from uh, Representative Blackburn when she came in uh, today, uh, this week, excuse me, as well, to talk with the Tennessee Editorial Board. She talked about gas tax and uh, money coming in for, for road projects. Joel, can you kind of break down what she said versus what the campaign's saying versus where she actually stands on taxes? <laughs> I'll try. So uh, Marsha Blackburn, in an hour-long editorial, came in and she talked about uh, a, a response to a question related to infrastructure. Uh, so at one point, she talked about a, a, a bill from a congressman out of Pennsylvania uh, who is chairman of the Transportation Committee, uh, Schuster, who basically has this proposal that would raise the gas tax over uh, a period of three years. Um, this is very similar to a proposal that Bob Corker had in 2014. It was shot down by Blackburn and others, did not go anywhere. Um, and actually, at that point, Blackburn said that Washington has a spending problem, not a revenue problem. So today, she or, or this week, she had said uh, to the editorial board that this was a um, at least a, a, 
very thoughtful proposal and one that is uh, the House is working on is in the is a right step. So it kind of appeared to me that it was a reversal from her previous, uh, you know, uh, condemnation of similar plans. Her campaign has since said, no, 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 you're wrong on this. Uh, she actually has always been opposed and will always be opposed to a federal gas tax increase. Uh, one caveat in that being she also went out of her way to say that she praised the governor and the state legislature for raising the gas tax last week. So take that for what it is. Feels a little bit like a moment of, uh, you know, having your cake and trying to eat it too, right? I'll let no the, the listeners interpret, <laughs> not me. Yeah, you should go read the story. There's a ton of other stories that we wrote uh, in, in recent days about uh, some of the more uh, day-in, day-out political coverage. We're going to try something new this week. We're going to try and speed through these stories and let you guys know what they're about. We're calling it uh, a notebook dump. Which is the thing that no editor wants you to ever do in a story. So No, it's that idea where you get to the back <laughs> of the notebook, maybe you leave it in a story, maybe you don't. We're going to give it to you all right here <laughs> since you're our dedicated listeners. Joel, kick us off here. So uh, more recently, Marsha Blackburn has been kind of under fire for a relationship with Nashville businessman Lee Beeman. Beeman's in the middle of a contentious divorce with his wife, and he's given thousands of dollars to Marsha Blackburn over the years. And he most recently was named co-chairman of her pro-life coalition. When uh, uh, Blackburn was at this event with Marco Rubio, she called it a, quote, difficult personal and family situation and that she's praying for the Beeman family. And just to clarify, that's like a professional relationship that Blackburn has with with Beeman. That's correct. Not, Not a personal one, yes. Um, uh, another thing that happened recently, uh, September 13th, Phil Bredesen was in Memphis at Rhodes College where he spoke to a couple hundred people. The event was supposed to be a USA Today network a debate that was going to be between Blackburn and Bredesen. Blackburn said she couldn't be a part of it because her schedule didn't fit it. Uh, so Bredesen had this event. Um, on September 20th, Blackburn was in Memphis uh, with University of Memphis cheerleaders and got them to chant her name. She posted this video on Facebook and the university responded by asking her to take it down. <laughs> uh, and then um, most recently, uh, on September 14th, Marsha Blackburn appeared in Brentwood with Marco Rubio uh, for a discussion on immigration. Former Governor Winfield Dunn recently became the second former Tennessee governor to endorse Marsha Blackburn. Joe DiPietro, he's the president of the UT system, has announced that his last day on the job will be November 21st. There were rumors that Haslam was going to take over the position, which he has denied. And House Majority Leader Glenn Cassida has thrown his name into the race for the House Speaker race. Vice President Mike Pence is coming to Knoxville on September 21st, Saturday, for a fundraiser for Marsha Blackburn. He's come to town before for a fundraiser. Uh, I anticipate that there will be plenty of other national Republicans that will want to raise money for Marsha Blackburn. Uh, But perhaps uh, most interesting, we're going to actually have a debate. It's going to be September 25th. It's going to be between Marsha Blackburn and Phil Bredesen. It's going to be streamed live on the USA Today Network Tennessee platforms. We are hosting the debate with the League of Women Voters, uh, Nashville Public Television, and News Channel 5. It's at 6 p.m. Central Time. It's, uh, again, hosted by Cumberland University. Uh, It's not open to the public, but they're inviting guests to come in. It's kind of a small venue, but you should watch along. And, uh, again, if you have any questions for the candidates, uh, maybe not answered at the debate, but answered when we have a chance to talk to them, you should send them in, either uh, via email or uh, a phone call or 
tweeting us, hashtag Grand Divisions, any of that uh, engagement can help us answer questions that you might have. And for the the debate itself, uh, we plan on covering it, of course, having stories in the newspaper. Uh, But we also plan on having a special edition of this podcast for all of the gubernatorial and the Senate race debates. Uh, They should be available the day after, the morning after of the debate. That's the plan right now. So we'll see if we can get that done. We'll see if we can churn out a nice sleep deprived podcast. We did one after the primary election. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think we can probably do it again. We'll see. Right. Coffee. Uh, But only if you guys continue to rate us, uh, we'd prefer a five star rating if that's okay. Uh, on on uh, iTunes or wherever else you listen to us. It helps other uh, listeners find us and uh, helps us grow our audience a little bit. Uh, for now, this has been Grand Divisions. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. And I'm Natalie Allison, political reporter. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Okay.